message that he titled The Wailing of Risca. In the message, he warned the congregation uh, about the dangers of, of waiting to tell somebody about Christ. He spoke of people who had the best intention to tell their family or friends about Christ only to, for that person to suddenly die uh, unexpectedly. Spurgeon said this, quote, Oh, let not the fierce regret sting you like an adder. End quote. He was talking about this regret of always wanting to tell somebody about the gospel, never doing it, and then it becoming too late one day. And we probably all know someone, a family member or a friend, that doesn't know Christ, that we've intended to tell about Christ. We've intended to give them the gospel. Maybe we've even looked for opportunities, but have never used those opportunities, never taken advantage of that, all believing that at some point we'll have more time, we'll have opportunity to do that. And maybe you've had a family member or a friend who you've thought you've had plenty of time to give the gospel to, and then they die before you've ever shared Christ with them. In the same sermon, Spurgeon added this plea, he said, quote, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. End quote. This vivid picture that Spurgeon painted in order to give the audience an understanding of the, the horrors of hell and the eternity that people will spend there to grasp. We want his audience to grasp the reality of what happens when a person dies without Christ. He gets this picture of you can, of you kind of picture as you're standing between hell and the unsaved person and that you're grabbing them around the legs so they can't leap over your body into hell. Spurgeon's plea ought to be our plea. His passion ought to be our passion. His message ought to be our message. But how does one determine to, to have that resolve, to stand between the unsaved person and the gates of hell? Well... That resolve can only come from a person who recognizes the reality of hell. I submit to you, most people, many Christians, though they affirm the reality of hell, don't actually grasp what that means. It's one of those concepts that as a Christian you've heard many times. In fact, it's so familiar that it loses its impact. But if we could feel the heat of hell's flames, if we could smell the stench of burning flesh, if we could hear the shrieks of the unimaginable torment, if we could see the terrified faces of family and friends that don't know the Lord actually in hell as they nod their tongues in agony, would it not grip our hearts and souls? Would it not change the way that we do things? Would it not impact us in such a way that we would plead with them while there was time? Would we not 
want to make sure that everyone that we knew heard about forgiveness, heard about grace, wouldn't we not want to warn them how they could escape hell? Would not the reality determine what it is that we choose to fuss and fight about in this world? If we had a full grasp of eternity and what's going to take place, would it not change our priorities and our conversations with people? Would we be, wouldn't we be less concerned about the temporary things and more concerned about eternal things? Wouldn't, wouldn't it alter our attitudes and our actions? If you answered no to those questions, then I submit to you, you don't know Christ. You have no idea what eternity is like. You don't believe what the Bible says about hell. Jesus understood the reality of hell. Having prepared it for the devil and his angels, he knew full well what it meant for somebody to go there. He knew full well the torment that they would experience for all of eternity. And in Luke 16, Jesus paints a word picture for his audience so that they can grasp the reality of hell and the urgency of putting their faith in him. His primary audience at that moment were the Pharisees. They had listened to Jesus earlier, and Jesus has given a series of parables for up to this point. He's got two more to do. He starts with the Pharisees who have criticized Jesus because he was associating with tax collectors and sinners, and they just didn't think that was, that was right for a rabbi to do. Why, when the world, would somebody like Jesus, who is a teacher, as a rabbi, associate with such sinners? So Jesus responds by giving three parables in a row, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. All designed to show that God rejoices when somebody who is lost is found and, and comparing that to a believer coming to saving faith or a, a sinner coming to saving faith becoming a believer. He then turns his attention to his disciples and he gives this parable of the shrewd manager. And the point of that parable was that they should, that we and all believers should use this world's wealth for eternal purposes. We should advance the kingdom of God with our temporal wealth. We should be using it to bring people to saving faith, advance, uh, 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 investing in the kingdom of God. When he finishes that parable, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. They just thought it was ridiculous. They thought it was foolish that Jesus would say anything like use the world's money to invest in eternity. These religious leaders believed themselves to be God's favorite children. When God looked at all of his children, the Pharisees thought, we stand out, we're above and beyond, we are clearly the favorite. So Jesus turns his attention to them. And he speaks directly to their wickedness and their false belief that their wealth was God's blessing. See, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees looked at their wealth and said, because we're wealthy, 
that is God's stamp of approval on our lives, that must mean we're right with God. That must mean God loves us. And the wealthier we are, the more God loves us. So if you were to challenge them and say, well, are, are you going to heaven when you die or not? They would say, well, first of all, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a Jew, so yes, I'm going. But second of all, I'm a Pharisee, so I'm definitely in. And third, I'm a rich Pharisee, which is showing God's stamp of approval on my life. So Jesus addresses these Pharisees. And he's going to explain the problem that they have, this problem with religious unbelievers, and then he's going to get into the parable. We won't get into the parable this morning, so we're just going to look at verses 14 through 18, the problem of religious unbelievers. There's a lot of people who are religious, but they're unbelievers. They know some religious things. They know religious lingo. They know some things about God, some things about the Bible, some things about Christ, but they don't know God. And that was the issue with the Pharisees. It's the issue with a lot of people today. I've met a lot of them, so have you, people who claim to be Christians. And, and if you explore that and you ask them, how do they know they're a Christian, they can't give you a good answer. My father was one of those people who claimed to be a Christian, but when I'd asked him, why do you think you're a Christian? He couldn't ever come up with an answer why. He didn't know why. There was no evidence in his life that he knew Christ, but he thought he was. He knew some religious things, and I remember when I was being ordained, I didn't invite him to my ordination service because I didn't think it would mean anything, but my mother invited him, and my dad showed up, and I introduced him to the pastor I was working for at the time, and the pastor put his hand out and said, Hi, I'm Marvin. And my pastor said, Praise the Lord. Or my, my dad said, Praise the Lord. And, and I went, I've never heard my dad use those terms in my entire life. And then later, my pastor said, I thought you said your dad wasn't saved. I said, He's not. He said, Well, he said, Praise the Lord. I went, Is that the criteria? A lot of people know religious lingo, that doesn't make them saved. So in this problem with religious unbelievers, Jesus is going to show three main problems. We're going to read verses 14 through 18. They're going to sound initially as unrelated verses, but they all fit together under these problems of religious unbelievers. Starting Luke chapter 16, verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now again, those look like uh, verses that are, seem to be unrelated, but they all kind of fit in this, this context of Jesus addressing religious unbelievers. Believers or unbelievers who thought they were religious, who thought they were right with God. The first of the problems is they desire what God hates. They desire what God hates. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things 
and were scoffing at him. They're scoffing because, as I mentioned earlier, they consider their money as rewards from God. They consider the fact that they're rich as God rewarding them for their righteousness. They took that so far as to say that anything that they received was clearly God's blessing and therefore uh, couldn't be used for anything other than, well, what they determined was religious uses. And it went so far as to, uh, to keep money from benefiting their parents at all. This is well before Social Security or welfare or anything like that, back when children would take care of their aging parents. And the Pharisees would take all their money that they received and they would say, all my money is Corbin. That is, it is dedicated to God. So when mom and dad needed financial help, the Pharisees would say, mom, dad, love to help you, but all the money I have is dedicated to God, so you're just going to have to eat cat food. I can't help you. I can't take care of you because I, be I would be stealing money from God to do that. Of course, when they needed a new hybrid chariot, they would just take the money out and go buy it. And as you know, hybrid chariots ran on horsepower and you pushed them. So. But they would take this money and say, this is just for God's use unless they needed it. And, and that way they didn't have to worry about giving it to anybody else. As long as they had money... It would be difficult to convince them that they were in any serious trouble. You could try to tell them, listen, you're gonna, you're, God is uh, not happy with you because you're a sinner. And they would say, wait a minute, I've got all the money I need. Look at what God has given me. And so they would deny that. Though they believed in eternal life and they believed in eternal punishment, unlike the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in eternal life. They believed this life was all that there is. And when you died, you just rotted and became dust again. The Pharisees did believe in eternal life. They did believe in eternal punishment. But they lived as if this life was all that there was. And you understand that, right? You know people like that who say they believe in eternity, they believe in an afterlife, they believe there's eternal life, they believe there's eternal punishment, but they live as if this life is all that there is. Because they're not investing in eternity, they're not storing up treasures in heaven, they're not worried about how they live their lives today, they're not interested in honoring God with their life here and now. So they just live as if this is it. If I'm going to be rewarded from God, it's going to be here and now. So they, they say they believe like a Pharisee does, that it, there's eternal life, but they live as if there's a Sadducee, that this life is all that there is. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The Pharisees complained that Jesus associated with tax collectors and sinners, and they used that as evidence to say, excuse me, <coughs> they used that as evidence to say he couldn't possibly be from God. Because if he was from God, he would never associate with that type of people. No self-respecting religious leader or teacher in all of Judaism, they would say, would ever associate with that type of people. They themselves would never condescend to people like that. Jesus will show them that they are actually the ones who don't know God. In fact, he will say that the 
the tax collectors and the sinners are going to get into heaven before you Pharisees will. Because they recognize their sin and their need for salvation, whereas the Pharisees wouldn't. While being very religious, they lack the character that God desires. And they pursue the things that God despises. God has always made it clear throughout His Word that the heart is more important than the practice of religion. The heart is more important than sacrifice. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on, high and ho- on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to receive the heart of the contrite. God has said, the people that I dwell with are the people who are humble, the people who are lowly, the people who understand their sin and are contrite about it. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's loyalty, it's knowing God, that's more important than the religious activity. Jesus would quote this on two different occasions. If you knew what this means, that I want loyalty rather than sacrifice, that was more important. Oh, the law was important. Jesus isn't saying, and God isn't saying that the law isn't important, that the sacrifices weren't meaningful. He was saying, if, you're only, if you can't do the sacrifice and your heart is right, that's more important than doing the sacrifice with a wicked heart. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What shall we say, or with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God has told us throughout His Word the things that He cherishes as a humble person. Because pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I don't need anything. I have all that I need. I can do it myself. Pride says, I'm good enough. Pride says, I'm smart enough. Pride says, God has already gifted me heaven. It's the lowly that recognize their sinful condition. We live in a world that exalts the arrogant. We reward the arrogant. We reward the prideful. We reward the one who can throw a ball better than anybody else, can hit a ball farther than everybody else, can shoot a ball better than anybody else, can run with a ball better than anyone else. We reward those things. We reward the people who can uh, sell a lot of movie tickets or sell a lot of albums. God hates pride. Does God hate pride because he hates sports? No. Does God hate entertainment? Probably. But he hates pride because pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, pride says, I got it figured out. That's why it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven because they take pride in their money. 
That's where they find their security. That's where they find all that they need is they don't need anything else. Jesus goes on to say, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. They worked hard to convince other people that they are righteous. And they treated God as if he was like a human being, can only see what the Pharisees allowed them to see. That God can only look on the outside. And the Pharisees were content to be more righteous than the tax collectors and sinners. So they compare themselves with the right people. I, I, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like other people, sinners like other people. To convince people they were righteous, they made long public prayers. In the time of Christ, they would stop three times a day, no matter where they were, and they would pray. They would, if they were in public, they would stop right there and they'd pray in public. And the Pharisees tended to make sure they were in public spots. And they'd make long prayers and people would look at them and go, wow, they're so spiritual. These people are amazing. They loved it. They loved to be seen by people. It's still that way in the Middle East where prayer is called uh, at various times a day. Right now it's done for Muslims. You hear the call to prayer coming over the loudspeakers on, uh, in, in uh, places where Islam is in control. But even during the time of Christ, there was times a day where Orthodox people, Christians or, or believing Jews and non-believing Jews would stop wherever they were and pray. And the Pharisees wanted to make sure they were in a busy spot in town. They could stand there and look up in heaven and make long prayers. They made a big deal when they brought their tithes to the temple. They'd make a lot of noise as they brought their gifts to deposit, deposit them in the, in the receptacles, the trumpet-shaped receptacles in the temple, so people would notice. It'd be like you walking in with one of those you know, sweepstakes checks to give it. You know, okay, hey, yeah, I miss, uh, just got to get my tithe in there. Hey, can you help me fold this so I can get it in the box? It'd be that type of thing. They wanted to appear to be righteous. They broadened the phylacteries on their foreheads or their, their arms. They would wear, the Jewish men would wear these leather pouches like a headband or on, the, on their arm. And they contained little scrolls of written scripture that they would put in these pouches. And the Pharisees would make them bigger, thicker. They would stand out more on their arms or on their foreheads. And people look at them and go, wow, look at how big their phylacteries are. They could get a lot of scripture in there. These guys must be really spiritual. Every good Jewish man wore a prayer shawl, and on the ends of the prayer shawl would be tassels that were used to remind them to pray, but the Pharisees would be even longer than everybody else's. And people would see them and go, wow, you can make sure no matter what they're wearing, you can see the tassels so they, people would be impressed by them. They did all this to be justified in the sight of men. So men would look at them and be impressed. Men would say, man, they're spiritual. These guys, these are really godly. And while they appeared to be righteous, they were actually just like freshly painted tombs. They were nice and pretty on the outside and inside full of dead men's bones. They failed in comparison to Jesus. So what was their response? Jesus is a sinner. We don't look anything like Jesus because he's the sinner. They couldn't dispute his power and his teaching, so they said, well, he has a demon. 
He's demonically possessed and he's a sinner. They were exalting themselves in the eyes of men. And all along they were detestable in the eyes of God. Verse 15 continues with, For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They prided themselves on their ability to live the law outwardly. And they allowed pride to rule their hearts. And that pride kept them enslaved to sin. Because pride always does. God hates pride because it makes you enslaved to sin. That sin that says you don't need God, that you've got it all figured out. They lacked their ability to see their own lives for what they are. They, they lack the ability to see their own critical and hateful spirit. They would look at others that Jesus showed compassion on and they would despise those people. They despised Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. They had no compassion for the person that he just healed. And they were so blind to their own sin that they couldn't realize that. They couldn't even recognize the fact that they were hateful. They lacked grace. They were so enslaved to their pride that they failed to see that they lacked any kind of grace whatsoever. Their judgmentalism was result, resulted in them wagging their fingers, at their self-righteous fingers at anyone who didn't dot their I's or cross their T's the same way they did. Oh, you've met people like that, haven't you? You're not just like me. You don't think the way I think about everything. You don't act like I think. You're the one who's a wicked sinner. That's what they did to Jesus. Jesus doesn't act like us. Jesus doesn't think like us. He's a wicked, demonically possessed man. Their pride wouldn't even allow them to see their own sin. For that reason, they mocked the teaching of Jesus. Society has always considered the rich to be something special. Somebody makes enough money, earns enough money, wins enough money, inherits enough money, they can get themselves on a talk show and have all the answers to all the world's problems, apparently. Because that's always been the case, these, these Pharisees loved money, convinced themselves that that money was God's admiration. The wealthier they got, the more they were convinced that they were pleasing God. In fact, if you were to tell one of those Pharisees, God is not impressed by you, you are a sinner, they would say, what are you talking about? Look at how much money I have. If God has blessed me with this, how can you say I'm a sinner? The wealthier they got, the more they became convinced that God was pleased. And ultimately, their first love was wealth and admiration. It wasn't Christ. Jesus summarized their hearts in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. God hates pride and arrogance. And that's what the Pharisees were. As long as men thought they were okay, that was enough for them. 
And they didn't care what God thought. Because they believed that God just thinks like men think. But God could see their hearts. God knows their hearts. That's what Jesus said. God knows your heart. You can hide it from everybody else. You can pretend that no one else knows. But the fact is God knows your heart. God knows why you do what you do. God knows why you have the attitudes you have. God knows why you love the things that you love. And you can't hide that from Him. You can hide it from a lot of other people, but you can't hide it from Him. God knows the pride that rules. And He hates it. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. God uses strong language there. I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Like the Pharisees, many people in our world desire things that God hates. They desire admiration. They desire all that the, the things that the world says are important and valuable. And God says, none of that means anything if you don't have a relationship with me. Our world loves things that exalt themselves, exalt, exalt things above God, and robs God of glory, and gives glory to themselves. Not only do they desire the things that God hates, secondly, they deny what God offers. They deny what God offers. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Specifically, they had rejected the offer of the kingdom of God. That's what had been offered from the beginning of Christ's ministry and the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And they had their own ideas of what the kingdom should be, so they rejected God's offer of the kingdom. The kingdom that John the Baptist was offering required repentance, required humility. The Pharisees didn't think they had anything to repent of, and they lacked humility, so they didn't think that the offer of the kingdom that John was offering was the kingdom they wanted. Same thing for the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they would say, I don't have anything to repent of. So this isn't the kingdom we're looking for. They rejected the law and the prophets. And that would include John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. Though he's in the New Testament in our canon, he's actually an Old Testament prophet. He acted like an Old Testament prophet. He dressed, he dressed, he dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He ate like an Old Testament prophet. His message was that of an Old Testament prophet. And because his ministry ends before the death and resurrection of Christ, he's essentially an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus is saying that the the message has been proclaimed all the way through John. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. That is, the, the Pharisees have rejected the message of the kingdom. They rejected the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist. 
They rejected the idea and the teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. When John the Baptist would say things like, point at Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they rejected that. All the evidence that pointed to Jesus as being the Messiah, they rejected. They rejected calls for repentance and submission. You might remember when a group of Pharisees came to John the Baptist to be baptized, not because they believed, but because the crowds were coming to John to be baptized and they wanted to see what was going on and wanted the crowds to think they were on the same side. And John saw them coming and said, who warned you to flee, you generation of vipers? Go away and come back when you have fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, when you truly repent, you come back and you can be baptized. They were rejecting Christ. And as they were doing that, everyone else was forcing his way into it. The idea is, while the Pharisees are rejecting the offer of the kingdom, others were putting in the effort to secure salvation. Specifically here, the tax collectors and the sinners. They are working to, to make sure they secure salvation while the Pharisees were saying, we don't even need it. Now, we all understand, if, we, if you've been in church for any length of time, that salvation is... A free gift of God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not the result of works. But the fact that salvation is not the result of works does not make us completely passive in the process. It's not like you were sitting on your couch one day and Jesus just reached down from heaven and hit you on the backside of the head and you went, He touched me. Oh, He, he didn't grab you by the nape of the neck and throw you on your knees and force you to pray. At some point you came to Christ, you called out, you recognized you were a sinner. Sometimes we're so afraid of being accused of a works-based salvation that we remove anything that shows us of having personal responsibility. But God has always commanded men to seek Him. In Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. There's a, a responsibility that was put on men. You need to search for me with everything in you, and you'll find me. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Amos 5, 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He would tell us to seek, ask, and knock. And if we seek, we'll find. If we ask, we'll receive. If we knock, the door will be opened. All these are showing effort on our part. Now, we also know that other, if it weren't for the grace of God, we couldn't even do that. But Jesus speaks of the effort that accompanies genuine saving faith. In Luke 9, 23, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. That requires effort. It's not passive. Luke 14, 27, carry your own cross. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. These show effort on our part. These aren't the means of salvation. They are evidence of salvation, though. When we're saved, when we're truly saved, we do things. And we are called to work. We're called to seek. We're called to believe. In fact, the word Believe, the verb believe is used as a command at least five different times in the New Testament. You must believe. You are to believe. Again, we recognize that these are only possible through God's Spirit that enables us to do them. 
But that doesn't negate our responsibilities and our efforts. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you've rejected the law and the prophets. You've rejected everything that they've said and, and, and what they've said about true righteousness, which is a heart righteousness. You've rejected what the law and the prophets have said about the Messiah and you refuse the offer of the kingdom. And while you're doing that, others are striving to enter into the kingdom. The tax collectors, the sinners are confessing their sin, they're repenting, they're turning from their sin and turning to Christ. The Pharisees' effort to circumvent the word of God and enter heaven on their own accord, on their own standards, would ultimately be futile because the law and the prophets will be fulfilled in all details. The Pharisees think, well, God's just impressed by me and I'm a Jew, so therefore I'm good. And Jesus is saying, you've got the wrong idea. The law and the prophets will be fulfilled. And that wasn't, that's never been the means of salvation. Verse 17 says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The smallest stroke of a letter of the law. That's like the difference between a capital F and a capital E. The difference between a capital F and a capital E is one little line at the bottom of the letter. And Jesus said it's easier for heaven and earth to go away than for one of those little lines to fail. In other words, whatever God has said in his word is going to take place exactly as he said it. You can misinterpret it all you want. You can deny what the word of God says all you want. You can ignore it all you want. You can even hate it. It doesn't change the fact. We've all known people who say, I don't believe the Bible. That doesn't change anything. It's true whether they believe it or not, and it will still be fulfilled. Well, that's, they will say, well, that's true for you. It's not true for me. No, it's true, period. It doesn't matter if somebody believes it or not. It doesn't matter if they like it or not. It doesn't even matter if they hate it. The Word of God is still true, and it will not be distorted. The Pharisees desire what God hates and they deny what God offers. And third, they distort what God says. They distort what God says. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So Jesus illustrates his point about the wickedness of the Pharisees. Divorce was never part of God's design or desire. Marriage for life was always his desire. Adultery was so severe that given uh, in the law, the penalty for adultery was stoning to death. It was the same penalty for murder as adultery. You would take that person outside the city gates and you would stone them until they were dead. But because of man's wickedness and God's mercy... God allowed for divorce in cases of adultery rather than putting the sinner to death. Matthew chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to them, because of, your hardness, uh, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The law would, the New Testament law would later add, if an unbeliever 
abandons the believer, that's a permission for divorce as well. The Pharisees, though, had taken God's word and twisted it for their own ends. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, this is part of the law, Deuteronomy 24, 1, says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. But they took that phrase, finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, originally, what that referred to was some immoral indecency. That would mean that on their wedding night, they, he found out that she wasn't a virgin, or later, you'd find out that she was unfaithful. So if he found out those things, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. And by the way, at this period of time, only men could file for divorce. Women weren't even allowed to file for divorce in that day and age. But the interpreters of the law had expanded this from the immoral force to include, well, anything that the woman did that displeased the husband. Became very broad, essentially making any reason for divorce a valid reason. In fact, Jewish writings give some of, here's some of the reasons given in the ancient Jewish writings for divorce. Fixing a bad meal. Well, she fixed something you didn't like. Didn't taste good, wasn't prepared well. Well, here's your certificate of divorce. See you later. Being disrespectful to her mother-in-law, your mother. Well, she said something mean to my mom. Well, that's it for her. Yes, mom was being a nag, but here's a good one, women. You'll love this one. Not giving birth to a son. Because it's all your fault if you only had daughters. Then not being as pretty as other women. I mean, these were legitimate things that, they, that, that were in Jewish writings as okay to divorce. So what the Pharisees had done is they'd taken God's word and they twisted it to their own ends and really made it, hey, we can, we can get divorced for whatever reason we want. If I'm just unhappy or I want to move on to the next year's model, then I just write a certificate of divorce and hand it off. Their hearts were wicked. They desire what God hates, they deny what God offers, and they distort what God says. And as a result of all this, they were on their way to an eternity in hell. And they didn't even know it. They thought they were good. They thought they were fine. They thought they were on their way to heaven. And Jesus is showing them, you are not as good as you think you are. If you were as good as you think you are, you would love what God loves you. You wouldn't desire what God hates. You wouldn't deny what God says. You wouldn't distort what He says. You wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, be uh, slaves to your own pride. You wouldn't be looking at your wealth as a sign of God's standard, as God's blessing. They denied they were violating God's word in any way, and the proof was their bank account. Well, I can't be denying God's word because, look, I'm rich. And if I'm rich, obviously God is impressed by what I'm doing. They believed their wealth and prestige was evidence of God's blessing on their lives. There are many modern-day Pharisees. 
Many people who claim to be religious, but they're lost. They desire what God hates. They deny what God has offered. They distort what God says. They say, well, that, the Bible doesn't apply to me, or this area of the Scripture doesn't apply to me, or that's just your interpretation. That's distorting what God says. They desire those things that God says you shouldn't be desiring. They deny that God requires a broken, contrite heart. There's a lot of modern-day Pharisees. A lot, of, a lot of men and women who will wag their self-righteous finger and say, if you don't believe exactly like I believe then obviously you're a sinner or you have a demon. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. Listen, Jesus, if you're really righteous, you'd be like us. Let's make sure that we're not being modern-day Pharisees. Let's make sure that we're, we're not desiring those things that God hates. Make sure that we're not denying what God offers or distorting what God says. Let's be people who are humble, submitting ourselves to God, allowing Him to direct our hearts and change our lives. The alternative is to be religious and lost and spend eternity separated from God in hell. And Jesus is going to give a very vivid description of hell. And in the parable, it's the rich man that ends up there. And for the Pharisees, that would be unbelievable. How could a rich man enter and end up in hell? That makes no sense. And that's the whole point of the parable that Jesus is going to give. What they think is true is not true. Make sure you're thinking what God thinks. You're believing what He said. If you don't know Christ today, please come talk to me. Talk to somebody here that we can share with you out of the Scripture how you can know Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. Thank You, Father, that You love us. You loved us so much you sent your son to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, you're, you graciously sent your spirit to reveal our lost condition so that we might know the forgiveness of sin, so that we might repent. Father, our world is slaves to pride, slaves to sin. Father, so many people refuse to see their sin the Father that keeps them lost. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You as Lord, I pray that You would open up their eyes to their own condition, that they would recognize that they need saving faith, that they need to repent from sin and turn to You. Father, I pray that You would be glorified to bring people to saving faith today. Father, help us to recognize if there's a tendency to be a Pharisee, and Father, help us to repent. Help us to give you the glory you deserve to humble ourselves before you. And Father, may you be glorified. Lord, we see our world spinning out of control. 
Faster and faster, we seem to be moving toward the end when you return. And Father, we pray that we would be found faithful until that end. Faithful to give you glory. Faithful to obey. And Father, faithful to tell the lost about the plan of salvation, giving them the gospel, the only thing that can save their souls. And Father, we pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would bring them to saving faith today. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.